0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 116.
1: Today, we have a really, really good episode with three amazing content creators. We are joined today by Jesse Ace, who was the host of the Disabled to Enabled podcast, which actually ended in December of 2020, but it's an excellent podcast. We're also joined by April Moreno, who is the host of the Sisterhood of Limitless Living podcast. And finally, we're joined by Lauren Friedman, who is the host of the Uninvisible podcast. So it's a really great conversation and we hope you enjoy
0: Welcome to season four of the Myelin and Melanin Podcast. I'm Dawn.
1: And I'm Dana. We are two Black women sharing our musings on life, MS, and everything in between.
0: You can find us on the web at myelinandmelanin.com, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Myelin Melanin. Also, don't forget to subscribe to us on YouTube. Welcome, everyone. Welcome, Jesse, Jesse Ace. Hi, (laughs) April Moreno (laughs) and Lauren Friedman. Hi, hi. thank you all so much for being here.
2: Thank you for having us. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, so Dana and I have really been diving into our theme for season four. And this season, we decided to talk about what it means to take up space. And it it means something different for everybody, I think, or we think. Um, but people in the community, the autoimmune community that we're in, or, um, quote, disabled community, I think we may have a different view on what taking up space means. And you all have platforms, or had a platform, uh, and I'll just briefly say that April is the host of the Sisterhood of Limitless Living podcast, uh, Jesse, had a wonderful podcast, uh, Disabled to Enabled, and you can refresh my memory because I don't remember when it um, when you stopped your podcast. Uh, December, yes, yes, December, <laughs> and Lauren, Lauren Friedman, um, mm. you have the Uninvisible podcast. So yeah, yeah, so you all have these amazing platforms. How do you, when you think about taking up space and Dana, you can dive in and take over.
1: And I'll say Mm -hmm. too, so as people who are or have um, had podcasts, you know, we're used to holding the space for other people. So we have guests on our shows and we hold the space and we make space for them to tell their stories, et cetera. But that said, and I'll pose this to each of you. Maybe we'll start with April what does it mean for you? So you know how to hold the space for your guests and for people who you collaborate with on your show. What does taking up space mean to you? Hmm.
3: Taking up space personally or for other people?
1: For Personally. So when you think about the fact that as somebody living with an autoimmune illness, what does taking up space mean to you?
3: Um, It can mean a lot of different things. Um, taking up space, um, at the top of mind right now would mean something like still standing up for yourself and continuing to live forward in what it is you intended to do before the diagnosis mm-hmm. or during the diagnosis and continuing to move forward so taking up that space so like for example um, you know I talk about my PhD a lot because of the fact mm-hmm. that it happened during my diagnosis mm-hmm. and in many cases you know it would have you know, probably made sense to actually like not finish it, right? Because mm-hmm. there was so much to get through. You know, the, the numbness in my legs, the vision issues, the different headaches, and the, just getting that diagnosis in the first place, meanwhile, writing a dissertation. And yeah. through that, regardless, still continuing to move forward, just continuing to be um, confident in the fact that you have a purpose and you have a personal goal to get through, regardless of the circumstances, um would be my definition of that being able to get through and making that space regardless of what some of my messed up colleagues decided to say about me saying that because of my diagnosis that i could not succeed wow you know instead of up, you know deciding to stand up for myself and say forget everything you're saying because my desire is greater than your your gossip mm-hmm. you know, your pisme, your bs means very little to what it is I'm trying to do with my future and my desires to, to get this goal,
1: this life goal of completing this doctorate. So but April, I- you've had colleagues actually verbalize that? Yeah, yeah. Public
3: wow. health is actually a really messed up field. Um, you know, I don't know if I love public health. I love mm-hmm. what I can do with it as an outlet, right? communicate and share with people, but it has a very a colonial background mm-hmm. it has this conversation to this very day if you're in these classes how can i because of my textbook go to a spanish-speaking or african-american or native community and tell them what i think they should be doing to improve their health so there's still that ongoing dialogue and the, um i mean connected to that there's just there's there's a very special sp- spirit in the field of public health. I did a double major with information systems and technology, IT, mm-hmm. and that side was beautiful. Collaborative, innovative, just a lot of fun. Um, but on the side of public health, there's there's gossip, there's competition, mm-hmm. there's, um, there's just a lot of weirdness. <laughs>
1: yeah. So taking up space for you was really asserting, you know, asserting yourself into that conversation, really. Deciding
3: and um, For yeah. myself that as a patient or whatever that I would be diagnosed mm-hmm. or d- described as now with a diagnosis, that right. I can still move forward, have a voice, right. be able to um, serve communities, be able to continue to share messages of public health promotion mm-hmm. from a community-based perspective, right. be mm-hmm. able to you know, being enabled to get that space for myself so that I can use it to do my part to
1: bring other voices to the conversation. Thank you, thank you for that, Jesse. What are your thoughts? So, what does taking up space? And April just used the word enabled, and um, really made me think of your podcast, Jesse, the Disabled to Enabled podcast. What does taking up space mean to you?
4: for me it was kind of taking up that space on itunes and taking up that space on spotify mm. that was mm-hmm. you know not like celebrity interviews or not right. like uh sharing news or anything like that it's it's that little space that we have as people with chronic autoimmune diseases that mm-hmm. is just for us you know it's it's kind of pushing everything else aside and just forcing people almost to listen to us um and just giving ourselves that little bit of space to just listen to other people's stories and to really be, um, you know, kind of surrounded, if you like, with other people who get it. I think that's the difference.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it really, you know, when I think about, and Lauren, you had posted something on Instagram and let me see if I can find it. Okay, and I'm not sure when you posted this, but you posted Mm. a meme. It says, "If your activism doesn't include disability justice, it's not as intersectional as you think it is." Yeah. And which you know, what Jesse said, you know, just the fact that she had a platform that she used to talk about disability and chronic illness and things like that—that's a revolutionary thing. And our voices are often not given the space.
2: you know, when it comes
1: to media and culture and all of that. So that was kind of an aside, but Lauren, how do
2: you take up space? What does that mean for you? Well, first of all, I want to give credit to the person who actually wrote that quote Mm -hmm. um, who is in our disability community and is a very Mm -hmm. active and loving member of it. um, Mm -hmm. Samantha Reed um, because she's someone who's spoken to Congress to try mm-hmm. to change legislation um, mm-hmm. in favor of patients um, and is the digital director at Patients for Affordable Drugs, which is one of the very few ethically sound nonprofits out there, um, in my opinion, mm-hmm. um, and the only one of its kind on the Hill that advocates for lowering drug prices but doesn't take money right. from big pharma or any companies that profit from it. Um, I-, I think. You know, further to what April and Jesse are both saying here and, and what really struck me when you asked this question of uh what does this look like? You mm-hmm. know, um, for me, the personal is innately political. Yes. There's no separating the two. Um, we all need to examine intersectionality. Uh, we hear a lot of buzzwords in the media and in social discourse. Um about doing the work, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And we hear it for the most part in relation to racism. Um, And I I think that it's understanding that like, we are people who have platforms. Um, Obviously disability justice is a topic that is very personal and meaningful to all of us, Mm -hmm. but also understanding that those conversations need to go further than just holding the space, that it's also about having those conversations with your friends and family, um, that that's what doing the work looks like. You know, Um, having those personal interactions with people to get them to see what you're going through, to share, but also to ask them what they're going through Mm -hmm. um, and sort of lifting the veil on this this separation that we like to place between the personal and the professional. I think it looks like advocating for yourself and advocating for other people, Mm -hmm. which means listening. And it also means speaking truth to bullshit. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, April's given us a great example of that, um, in her getting her degree and, and, you know, showing people that she could do this thing that no one told her she could do, or that people were telling her she couldn't do, you know, we have to do that a lot in this community. Um, and I think doing that, without sort of we see a lot of disability heroism um out there too where it's sort of like inspiration porn Mm, of mm -hmm. look at what this person overcame. Right. Um, Yep. And understanding that for a lot of us and a growing number of us, in fact a third of the population of the US and growing rapidly, you know that that is just how we live our normal day and we don't need you to clap for us. But the norm. Yeah. But that we need you to, to make space for the fact that we exist and that we are important. And that's what having those conversations is about. It's about, you know, yeah, us holding the space, but then also expanding the conversation. Absolutely. And
1: speaking your truths. Yeah. And that's difficult. You know, Don and I on the podcast talk often about how we were in what well, we call it denial, about, you know, how. MS impacts us. And it wasn't really until we started the podcast that I personally felt comfortable enough to really share my story. But that's a very, it's a very powerful thing to speak truth to your experiences. And it's scary. Mm. You know, it's, it's a process. And so I think that that is very powerful just to speak truth to, to one's experiences. Um, And those experiences hold the space a lot of time. So I have to
0: piggyback on that too, Dana, everything you said is so true. When we started the podcast and as we began on this, you know, this journey, I felt like I didn't really understand what taking up space meant until recent, but I think that it brought on a level of vulnerability that initially I wasn't prepared for because taking up space is being seen, is being mm-hmm. heard. You know what I mean? It's like an invisible demanding, if if you will. You know what I mean? It's like I'm here, I'm living my in my authentic self, my authentic skin, and I'm not
2: afraid to do that.
0: You know what I does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yeah. You know what I mean? And so
2: I like that it, you bring that up, Don.
0: <laughs> yeah. It It just brought on that vulnerability that is so scary because it, because having an illness like MS or an autoimmune disease is like terrifying to even talk about with anybody Mm -hmm. (laughs) as comfortable as you are.
2: It's still scary. That's something I've definitely come across on my podcast for sure, is that Mm -hmm. a number of the people who I've had on the show are people who like, it's their first time doing a podcast. Mm, mm, yeah. So it's their first time publicly sharing their story because nobody's asked them before, which first yep. of all is a problem, right? Yes. Um, but for me, a huge part of that, taking up space also meant, and I'm not saying this to like, um, shine light on myself as a hero in this sense at all, (laughs) but it also means being able to um, use my privilege to create space for other people. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I have the privilege of being a white woman in this world. And, you know, I had at my fingertips the ability to create this podcast out of nothing. And Mm -hmm. I think it's so important that we recognize Sort of where our experiences are in the context of the wider experiences of people who are going through the healthcare system and and having these varied experiences.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And for me, we as podcast hosts are gatekeepers, mm-hmm. and it's about then prioritizing the stories of people who don't get to tell their story as often. Prioritizing those who are more marginalized. Um, I can't tell you how many people reach out to me asking to be on the show, and. of them are white people or the PR people for white people. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I'm so acutely aware of that there is an innate entitlement that comes with being white in America um, in terms of sharing your story, you know? And it's something that more women are stepping into, but the, the advocacy space is highly white dominated. And so being able to look at that as objectively as I possibly could and being able to go like well if I'm going to partake in this conversation I need to change it too yes and you and naming it yeah
1: you know a lot of times it's the elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about but naming it and calling it out um, just like you said earlier
2: just like calling out bullshit
1: that's that's a part of the process
2: Yeah, and it doesn't mean we get it right every time either, Mm -hmm. but it that shouldn't stop us from trying. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Jesse, you had um, a recent post on your IG that resonated with both Dana and myself. Uh, It's still ringing in my in my ears, but I'll read it. And it says, "The real gift of gratitude is that the more grateful you are, the more present." you become. So true. So, so true. Um, Before you, you know, dive into that, I wanted to just ask, are we grateful for this space? Do you feel that you are? Are you grateful for the space that you're in and that you're holding?
4: This is something that I've been asked so many times. (laughs) And earlier on today, I was actually writing an article on what makes me rare and why that is a good thing Mm -hmm. and it got me thinking a lot about um you know how is it possible to be grateful for an illness and I think from my experience from where I'm at right now on the basis of like having mild symptoms and having you know that sort of thing, I would say that I am grateful, because without it, I wouldn't be speaking to you guys right now, I wouldn't have a platform, mm-hmm. like a podcast, I wouldn't be doing all of these amazing things. And I wouldn't have um, had that, that knowledge of, I kind of feel like I've had my eyes open to the things that have been around me, and have mm-hmm. probably been around me for years. And I never really saw them because I wasn't in that sort of space, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, like the issues around uh, using blue badges but uh, for, for example like in car park spaces back mm. when we could go outside <laughs> Um not happened for a while um but like I used to use my blue badge and I'd never had that before and people used to judge mm. me for that you know and I kind of mm-hmm. thought you know what if I never had this blue badge if I never had this illness I wouldn't have known about this issue that affects so many people so I think from where I'm coming from Personally, there. Yeah, I would say yes. I am grateful for it. Um, I think it's opened up my eyes to so many different things, <clears throat> um, and so many inequalities that we've got going on as well.
0: When you speak of blue badge, does that mean uh, like a a handicap sign or something like that? On your or...
1: car or your vehicle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay,
0: okay.
4: Sorry, okay.
0: it's
2: my UK yeah. <laughs> <laughs> UK
1: jargon. Yeah. I
4: mean, <laughs> they also
2: have there's an awesome scheme in the UK. Jesse, I mean you can speak to this more cuz you've experienced it, but the blue badges that you can actually wear, they're like big blue buttons that you can wear when you're mm-hmm. on public transport to alert people to like please give you a seat. There yeah. there's much more visibility than there is here.
4: Yeah. Absolutely. I mean whether people actually believe you, that's the other thing. If you mm. on and say, "Oh, I've got a blue badge," people kind of sometimes look at you and go, yeah i don't think you actually have right. taken that from someone you look perfectly mm-hmm. fine to me um so, so that's yeah. really fun <laughs> that's let's play the game
0: <laughs> right that's so interesting i don't you know thinking about it i don't know i have a hard enough time with the handicap sign or the placard that goes in the car
2: i'm mm-hmm. not
0: sure how i would feel about wearing that it's almost like a scarlet letter you know what i mean? Mm-hmm. Like. <laughs> walking around with that, I don't know how it would feel.
2: I don't oh. know, in these COVID times, I'm like, I want people to know to stay the hell away from me.
0: But then, yeah, I right, need right. exactly, yeah. Right, <laughs> yeah,
2: right,
0: right. Or I need you to understand why I am backing away from
2: you because you're too close. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I right. also think like that. that's about like that. the taking up space where that feeds into this visibility factor also is like there's different levels of pride that mm-hmm. those of us in the community have about our diagnoses. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And that's, some of that is about, you know, how much, cause everyone has different ways of sharing their story or yes. or presenting to people what their inner monologue is kind of, you know, and whether that's through their gender identity or their sexual identity or their race or or religion or their disability status, you know? Right. And that for some of us, we don't need to share our stories. with everyone but for some of us like I feel like I need to scream it sometimes but that's because I've you know had all these different conversations and that's where I've landed but it doesn't mean it has to be the same for everyone else right and that speaks and that speaks to I mean and this is another
1: topic but just also to the internalized ableism that many of us
2: Mm. um, disabled sick
1: or not or temp we call people um who don't um have disabilities temp because you're temporarily abled. But anyway. Oh God, that's that. Thing. Yeah, temps. But um but yeah, there's so much ableism that even, you know, if you are sick or disabled, that we because we don't exist in a vacuum, we've absorbed all of these stereotypes and messages and all of those things that coming to the Point where you're able to adopt being disabled as a part of your identity—that's a thing um, mm. that I think a lot of people, you know, I've had MS for seven, going on seventeen years, and I'm no longer able to hide my disability. But it took me a long time to even accept the fact that MS was something that impacted my life. So everybody's at a different. Uh, stage in their um, journey.
2: I think that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And there's there's a huge part of like, I don't think, I think if you live well with a disability or chronic illness, that means you've probably allowed it to change your mindset in some way. Yes. Right. And it's, you know, it's interesting that you brought up the idea of gratitude, right? Because that's something that like, I've definitely landed in that space with Jesse as well you know, and being able to like recognize my own resilience and stuff. But I, I talk to other people who maybe haven't gotten there yet and maybe they won't get there, but Mm -hmm. sort of understanding that like, it's okay to be okay. It's okay to be so, so it's okay to not be okay at all and Mm -hmm. leaving space for states of being that we heretofore haven't normalized. Yes.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. I'm Absolutely. with both of you. I'm with Jesse for sure. And Lauren, I think what contributes to my gratitude is something that April, you had on your IG and um, I, it's not a long thing. It was just, you, you said the power of community and patient uh, partic- populations, or I think it was a, what was it? Uh, you had a podcast with a physician and those words just like struck me. Because without community and without you all, and without the platforms that we have to be able to share, to be able to hold the space for one another, to be able to show up and just be there, Mm -hmm. I I think that contributes to the gratitude that I have. Am I happy that I have MS? Nah, no, not at all. But Dana and I joke because we say, oh, has it made you a better person? And, you know, that, that question has come up in some of our episodes. And for me, I could say yes, because like you, Jesse, I maybe, I don't think I had the awareness of, you know, um people who were disabled. um Not that I didn't have the awareness, but I didn't have the awareness of like, okay, well, we need to have accommodations and why we need to have accommodations. Like it just mm-hmm. didn't register with me like fully, like it does now.
3: Tightly. That's the thing with the Sisterhood of Limitless Living podcast, the more I'm hearing about Um, various experiences with autoimmune diseases, the more I feel like the conversations we're having are very, very needed. And also, I just feel like I want to be wrong, but I feel like I have a very different perspective of disability um, from what I'm hearing um, in the greater autoimmune um, space, because maybe my age, I was diagnosed in my 40s, Um, you know, and once you get into like your forties, you get to this beautiful stage where you really care a lot less about what people think about you. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. that's already where I began with my diagnosis. And then also this fact that, you know, when I did get my diagnosis, I remember the day and, you know, she gave me that diagnosis in the emergency room. And I imagined immediately that I was going to be confined to a wheelchair for the rest of my life. You know, the whole thing from TV. And, um, you know, I just... I just prayed and I just said, you know, whatever it is that you know is going to be ahead of me, I just accept it. I'm not going to fight it. I'm willing to move forward and do the best with what is given to me um, ahead in the in the present and in the future. And so that that was my first um, attitude to it. So accepting it. But in that at that very beginning, Don and Dana, I actually was sharing my diagnosis all over the place. Because to me it was big. It was a huge experience that I wanted people to hear about. Oh my gosh, you'll never believe what just happened to me. Mm-hmm. I just went to the emergency room guys got diagnosed with this. Can you believe it? You know, mm-hmm. and I was telling people. And then it was my my neuro, my neurologist who was like, you know, you need to be careful. You are a postdoc now. And um, unfortunately, people are gonna see you as, hey, April, the one with this, um, when you go and look for jobs and when you like, you know, and I didn't think about that, I really didn't. And um, that's where I began to, okay, maybe I have to like kind of like mute this down, you know, and every situation's different. But for me, it was this, like, I was this aspiring professor, I was trying to get into the field. And unfortunately, my experience is, it's different from what I'm hearing a lot of the time where people are like, you know you guys don't understand what i'm going through i have this please don't expect this and that from me for me it was the opposite you know um i would tell a friend about my diagnosis and then every time she saw me she looked at me with like puppy eyes are you okay today you want me to hold that for you do you are you going to be able to walk with me over here can you do this you know and i was just like I, I don't hear enough of that side of the conversation where people are like looking at you like a charity case. Yes. Um, you know, there was this, there's a every year, you know, the, the association, um, they do this Christmas party that's hosted by like the casino. And um, I went once and it was just this whole huge charity event. And I just felt like poor me, I'm here, I'm getting a free lunch, I'm getting a candy cane. My gosh i'm this huge cherry case and you right. get photos with me this is this is not cool you know um so that's another side of things that i just feel like okay um you know i definitely have limitations you know you guys i i here it is i walked today in my my first day in my roller tour i loved it i loved it um mm-hmm. i went to the post office and um, it took me a while to figure out how to use the rollator for the first time but as I waited in line, it was just a beautiful experience to sit there with a nice cushioned chair a <laughs> fork, as I waited in line to, to buy some stamps. And, you know, so I like kind of like what Don's saying, I, I actually love the fact that this is my new normal. Um, you know, aside from the pain and waking up at night with, you know, tingling feet, burning feet, Um, Aside from the days I feel dizzy, aside from the summer days where my legs don't want to work or I feel intense fatigue, um, I love the fact that it opened a window to a new perspective on living. Mm -hmm. And um, it it brought me here to these conversations. Mm -hmm. I've met amazing, beautiful people in the autoimmune space. Um, You know, I started the nonprofit, the Autoimmune Community Institute, and we've made so many wonderful friends. You guys, we are amazing, we are resilient people. And I would have never had the chance to meet people with such strengths if it wasn't for my diagnosis. 100%. I
0: agree, 100% yeah. as well.
2: Yeah. yeah. I th- it's interesting too, because April, you bring up that thing of like the difference between community and tokenism, mm-hmm. you know? That like inclusion tends to look like one, of those two things, unless people are thinking about it more, you know, like, especially people outside of our experience that like, we either become the charity case, or we become the members of our own community where we can make our own story. But sometimes it's hard to be able to share those experiences with people who haven't gone through them. Of course, we're all going to rely on the healthcare system at some point, whether we're temps or Mm. spoonies, right, you know, but like that that level of privilege that able-bodied people have mm-hmm. is fascinating to me too, but I didn't understand it until I got sick either. i never even stopped to think about it. And I got mm-hmm. diagnosed like April sort of later on, I got diagnosed at the age of 34. Mm-hmm. So I think that's probably influenced my experience to be very different from say yours, Dana, where mm-hmm. you've been living with the diagnosis for much longer. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. At, at Dana and I talk about it all the time because we were in our twenties. I was 25. Mm-hmm. I, was I was 24, 20, 25. Yeah. I was 24. Yep. And I think I was more concerned about happy hour and vanity, you know, like, mm-hmm. am I going to be able to wear my heels? Like forget yeah. this. I don't have time for you MS like goodbye. And that certainly contributed to me being in denial.
1: People many, still going to find days. me attractive. Um, a total thing and it's so interesting april when you were sharing your story you know about being diagnosed with an illness in your 40s you didn't give a fuck anymore you know what i'm saying about what people think of you and i think that that's such a thing you know when we're thinking about where people are at when they're diagnosed because me as you know a 23 year old going on 24 i'm like in a totally different headspace than i am now as somebody who's 40. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, people are at just different their levels and layers to all of this.
0: How yeah. old were you, Jesse, when you were diagnosed?
4: Well, I was 22 Um, oh. and I literally did not feel okay talking about it even mm-hmm. for about four years afterwards. So I just want to put out there that yeah. like you know, I'd love to have been like April and has been like, Yeah, I'm fine with this. Like, this is totally fine. I'm like, I was not. Yes, <laughs> I was so not. So, uh, yeah, and I was totally worried about um, whether I could wear heels when I, you know, got yeah. married and stuff because I uh, had my eye on these red sparkly heels and I'm like, oh, those are the ones. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, like in the 20s, you know,
3: that's, like the teens and 20s, just kind of like as part of um, Western society, these are hard years for people. Yep. We have to figure totally. out right away how we're going to be productive members of society, right? How we're going to live like in a capitalist society how we mm-hmm. ourselves move away from our families and so on but um like in my own case um I actually have shared this in either my podcast or my a blog where um I was living with a lot of mental illness beforehand mm-hmm. and it was almost like I needed the diagnosis to wake me up mm-hmm. diagnosis to wake me up to live truly live for the first time because you know living with abuse and you know, like molestation and all kinds of other stuff from a very young age, Um, I was already like, I had a limit, a mental limit through my teens and 20s where -hmm. I I just didn't feel like I was even like entitled to live a normal life like other people. Mm -hmm. I didn't see myself as like, you know, someone spent time with me. I thought that it was, it made me uncomfortable because I was just like, wow, am I really a normal human being like everyone else? I would have these weird um, feelings like that. I was like less than, you know, as a human being. And so, um, you know, just throughout the twenties, I was already feeling like a sense of a, a huge depression, self-esteem and mm-hmm. all other types of mental illness, anxiety, and so on. But um, it was almost where the autoimmune diagnosis was, I almost needed something like that where I was like, I don't know if this is going to let you live or not. So you have to wake up. And mm-hmm. that's kind of, how I got to that point of acceptance. I think, like, Mm -hmm. or someone mentions where, you know, you have, you have this, like, difficulty to accept the diagnosis, and Mm -hmm. it it did take me, like, two months, but, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that difficulty where people are very angry about it, um, I actually didn't have that because maybe because of that depression and anxiety and all the other stuff I was dealing with in my 20s, um, where I was living a very, um, limited mm-hmm. mentally, a very mm-hmm. limited life, and going through very, very bad relationships and bad interactions with people because I didn't know how to stand up for myself, mm-hmm. uh, and because of mm-hmm. other. Um, so, I almost feel like I needed this diagnosis. Was it like a safety net? It, almost like it was a wake up call for me because it was just like, you know, when you first get diagnosed with something like this, you're just like, you, do, am I going to survive it? first of all, because you don't know, like, you know, they told me it was not minor, but they didn't tell me what that meant. Um, And, you know, am I gonna live? And if I'm gonna live, I better really live this time.
2: Right, absolutely. I think that's something that also comes up with the different people that I talk to, um, that there's a grieving process, right? And some of us enter that process at different points. I think I was probably very similar to April um, when she got diagnosed. Cause I remember slowly declining, getting the diagnosis and running into work and being like, let's get cake. I know what I have, you know, right. <laughs> like, right. like there's a relief factor to knowing what you have to being able to name it, to being able to like get yourself on a treatment regimen. I think that's different for people who remain undiagnosed. I think mm. it depends on, you know, the, the severity of the diagnosis, um, right. which is different for so many of us. But I also think what's interesting is that I hear stories all the time about people being diagnosed, and they tend to be diagnosed in their teens or early 20s. Mm-hmm.
1: Um,
2: so we're sort of anomalies, those of us who get diagnosed later, um, because there's something about, especially here in the States, um, this idea of, work-life balance, which should be life-work balance, right? Like we should flip it on its head. But like that when we're pushing ourselves and pushing our bodies beyond their limits, we, some of us are the canaries in the coal mine and end up Mm -hmm. getting sick. And there is something in being able to, like when April was talking about the Rollator, like you know, this idea of limits versus limitlessness, like there's actually a limitlessness in being able to be like, I need that. There's a limitlessness in being able to be like, this is more comfortable for me. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to use a mobility aid because I can actually get out to more places. It's not limiting to use one. It's actually a freedom. Absolutely.
3: (laughs) That's exactly how I feel about it. And like, I made sure I got the color that I liked. I made sure that I got a really beautiful bag that attaches to it. I got a drink holder attached to it. So if I go to Starbucks one day after the pandemic, I can walk with my drink and my Rollator. And yeah, the reason I did get it, and it's, it's winter time right now, so I don't really have the issues that I generally have, but I do like to get out there and take advantage of the senior hours. I like to take advantage of the times where people care to wear a mask in public spaces. So I get in line early and now the Rollator gives me that opportunity to, to sit there comfortably in line where people can actually make the great fantastic assumption and correct assumption that I have a disability. And
2: you can leave mm-hmm. me
3: alone and I'm comfortable in this line. Yeah. I'm
2: curious, cause April, cause like was that is that the first time you've had like a a visual signifier of of your diagnosis too because like I think that's also a fascinating journey when we go from like completely invisible to then maybe having a mobility aid or something else going on where people are like oh you're disabled. (laughs)
3: No for me it was definitely the placard so I made the decision one day to get I went to the DMV and I just said hey you guys I want the placard and I didn't even tell I told my husband afterwards and I I was kind of, I don't know, this is going to be a big moment because I don't know if he's comfortable with it, but I just went ahead and had the placard, I mean, the plates installed on my car because I don't like the placard because it's, you know, for, forget about it sometimes. Right. Yeah. I just went straight for the plates and I told my husband later and that was my first signifier where I was just like, you know, um, I don't mind people knowing and me driving around with this disability plate on my car. And hu- husband, you better be okay with it.
1: <laughs> I love <laughs> it
3: was, that. Yeah, he yeah, was very supportive, and it was definitely a freedom, um, especially at the time I was a postdoc. And getting parking is awful. So, mm-hmm. given, getting that opportunity once again, limitlessness, limitlessness, to mm-hmm. be able to park more easily on campus. Yeah, I. Always,
1: I think that. Oh,
3: sorry. Go ahead. Oh no,
1: I, I was going to say I always point out to. Um, people. And also just some context. I am a sociology instructor. And so I think about things on a macro level. And um, when we think about disability, it's society which disables people. It's not whatever your quote unquote disability is, whether or not you can walk or use your hands or see or whatever. It's society that uh, disables people. It's not actually our bodies it's the way that we're able to move in the world yes, so whether yes it be yes elevators or you know whatever the case may be if society was more accessible there wouldn't we wouldn't deal with the ramifications of quote unquote and i say quote unquote not because disability is quote unquote but we're not deficient and less than and disabled people that's right. it society is so you don't yeah. see the case mm-hmm. mm-hmm. discrimination and things like that yeah right or not sure. being able to access things
2: yeah. yeah yeah well and even in the disability space so many of us don't know about certain accessibility mm-hmm. whether it's rules or yes. um, options that we have within larger institutions you know yes. whether that's applying for a disability placard or or Um, you know, getting a a blue badge, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, things like that. Like not all of us are aware because even those things, like the marketing dollars that go behind those kinds of Mm -hmm. campaigns are so limited. I mean, there's already limited research funding for tons of illnesses Mm -hmm. too, you know? And I I wonder about like where all of that started, like where, where it became a discussion of difference. Mm -hmm. And I think, that's something that like, we're continually unpacking. Yes. But, you know, this conversation, it's, it is striking me in that sense of like, when did it become not okay to be different? Like, mm-hmm. because I think we're all at the place, the five of us of being mm-hmm. like, screw the rules. This is how we do it. Right. But that's taken years.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. It's not an automatic thing. Absolutely.
3: Yeah. And the conversations in disability, are they're, they're so like, there's still so much to be discussed. Like there's just so much, I think, theory that still needs to be developed. Like I read some of the information and in disability justice that I feel like some of it really relates to me and some of it doesn't. I feel mm-hmm. like there still needs to be further development so that we, we might be able to get to a point where we kind of have more agreement on some of the, the themes and specificities because we definitely mm-hmm. do have agreement, but I still feel like the theory still needs to be further. Like we need more space for that.
2: Absolutely. You know? And maybe that is, maybe it starts with curiosity. Like, I feel like the the only way we bridge the gap and like address that dialogue is by asking other people, which is exactly what we all do every day, you know? But like having that curiosity, if if our doctors had more curiosity and we could have been diagnosed sooner, if our loved ones had more curiosity and didn't Mm -hmm. tokenize us, if, you know, like all of these things come down to an openness, don't they?
1: Absolutely and the the basic reality of disability is that anyone of well all of us you know we're in the disabled community but anyone be- can become disabled at any time mm-hmm. period doesn't cool. matter who you are you at the drop of a dime something could happen and you could become disabled i think it scares people yeah we're stigmatized we are because as a society we place we know how where we place people with disabilities and you know, people who are elderly, people who don't fit the norms of what, you know, acceptable in the society is. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, when it comes to disability justice, and the whole concept of disability, it is something that everybody needs to be concerned with, because it impacts everyone and can impact everyone.
2: I think Um, that's why, yeah, like why I mentioned us being the canaries in the coal mine mm -hmm. earlier too. like, this is something that I think about a lot. Yes, that like, We're the first ones, we're the first line, Mm
1: -hmm. you
2: know, that have gotten sick. We've been on the firing line, essentially. Mm -hmm. And even with autoimmune disease, because we don't know where it comes from, Mm -hmm. you know, there could be genetic factors, there could be environmental factors. I think our bodies are the ones that are screaming, there's something broken, there's something wrong. And I think, make no mistake about it, that like the largest percentage of the population that we see living with various forms of chronic illness it tends to be women. Mm-hmm. And in a world that is built for the success of white men, yes. Yes. Are we that surprised that the ones getting sick are generally the opposite of that? That's not to say, I mean that's a blanket statement. There mm-hmm. are obviously white men who are sick too. Right. But I think it's like recognizing that like it there's nothing wrong with us. It's not our fault, if you will, mm-hmm. that we've gotten sick, there's something wrong with our environment and the expectations placed upon us culturally that we should even have to be having this conversation and trying to get people to recognize us at the same level.
3: And likewise, there's no surprise that, you know, people of color often get diagnosed later. There's more severe disability progression in autoimmune diseases. Um, These are not um, a surprise. And it's almost like, you know, I hate to say, but it's almost like by design, things are, things are working that they are designed to work.
2: Right. And, and all that does is reinforce the biased behaviors and opinions of those who have created these structures and continue to perpetuate them too.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, this has been a really enlightening conversation.
2: Thank you all.
1: Yes. Thank you. And really taking up space and holding space for this
2: conversation? You know what I mean? Um, Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I think in this space, we don't talk enough about all of these intersectionalities, all of this belonging, all of this. Yeah. Like this, this, what is the state of existence? Mm -hmm. And I'm really glad that you guys are addressing it because I think that's part of the deeper curiosity and conversation that we need to have within the disability community Mm -hmm. and beyond. So I'm very appreciative that you've brought this to the table for all of us.
3: Thank you. Thank you for providing this space for this conversation. This is a conversation that we very rarely get to have with other people. So I do appreciate it. Mm.
2: And and what badasses everyone is on this call too. <laughs> right.
0: For sure. <laughs> yes. But yeah. this is what community is. And without you all, you know, we we wouldn't. We wouldn't thrive you know without each other we wouldn't thrive we need each other yeah yeah absolutely yes so yeah. where can people find you uh
3: april where can people find your wonderful podcast and all about you you can find me at the sisterhood or take out the the it's sisterhood of limitlessliving.com uh the podcast is also on apple podcasts and spotify and all the usual places. We're at about episode 86 right now, I think. And it's been over a year. It's been wonderful um, meeting so many people. Um, And then also uh, started this organization called the Autoimmune Community Institute. We're dedicated to autoimmune health equity through community-engaged research, advocacy, and support. And that's at acicommunity.org. And Jesse, where can people find you? So
4: uh, Disabled to Enabled is still online. It's now hosted on Anchor, so you can go and have a look for that. Um, If you wanted to find a community of positive, like highly engaged uh, sort of people, uh, you can go and join the Enabled Warriors on Facebook, um, and you can find the random drawings that I do on jessieace.com.
0: Wonderful. And Lauren, where can everyone locate your podcast and you?
2: Thank you. Um, you can find me and my work at uninvisiblepod.com. And uh the podcast Uninvisible Pod is streaming wherever you subscribe to podcasts and on social um Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at Uninvisible Pod. Uh so please follow along. And we'll have an episode coming out soon with Don and Dana on it, and with one with Jesse, and hopefully one in the future with April. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so no. much. Thank you. This has been wonderful.
1: Thanks for tuning in to the Myelin and Melanin podcast. You can find us on the web at
0: myelinandmelanin.com, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Myelin Melanin.
1: Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.